Hey, welcome to Invention. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And i got to start you off with a pop quiz today, Robert. Let's have it. Actually, no, this isn't a pop quiz. Let's not pretend because you already know the answer to this. It's in the <laughs> notes. But here's the question. Would you have known the answer if you didn't do the research for this episode? The question is, do you know who was the very first person ever to receive a Nobel Prize in physics? I would not have known prior to uh, recording this. Not off the top of my head either. No, I wouldn't have been able to come up with the name. So the very first Nobel Prize in physics recipient is a German physicist by the name of Wilhelm Conrad Röntgen. And in the words of the Nobel Prize organization, he got the prize, quote, in recognition of the extraordinary services he has rendered by the discovery of the remarkable rays subsequently named after him. So rays named after him. What are these, Wilhelm rays? Yeah, we don't call them that. No, no, these were the Röntgen rays. Uh, And sure enough, if you go back into the 1890s and look at the journals of the time, you can find like articles in the journal Nature by no less than J.J. Thompson, the guy who's credited with the discovery of the electron, comparing Röntgen rays with the radiation emitted by uranium salts. But most people probably today do not know what Röntgen rays are because we call them by a different name. We call them X-rays. And that is going to be the topic for today. We're going to be talking about x-rays. Now, of course, this is a show about invention. And before you get out all your well-actuallys, it's quite true that x-rays were never at any point invented. They are not a human invention. They're a part of nature. Mm-hmm. In fact, x-rays are no more a human invention than visible light is. Though what makes x-rays special is that while we've long had the ability to produce copious amounts of visible light, it's only since around the beginning of the 20th century, a little bit before the beginning of the 20th century, that we understood how to produce and control x-rays. And it's this power, the power of the x-ray machine, that we're looking at today. And that's uh, one of the wonderful things, though, about this episode, is that this is a case where we can point to one individual, uh, one scientist, uh, one physicist, and and identify their key role uh, in in this turning point in history. Yeah, I think uh, a lot of inventions are are kind of murkier, right? Like Mm -hmm. a lot of things that we think of as inventions are actually just like slight modifications of something that came before. Uh, This is a case where there really was a tremendous sudden breakthrough and it had far-reaching effects all over the world. Just try to imagine the time before x-rays, before, say, X-rays in a diagnostic medical context, we now know X-rays are useful for a lot more than just medicine. But just think about going to the doctor and maybe having something wrong inside you at a time when there were no X-rays. Yeah, this reminds me of the old saying uh, about how a book is man's best friend outside of a dog. Oh, why is that? Well, because inside of a dog, it's too dark to see. Yuck, yuck, yeah. yuck. But, but it is. It is dark <laughs> inside the body. And it was it was you know, truly dark in, in many other ways uh, before the x-ray. Because before x-rays, the best way to peer inside the living body, it was to look through a natural aperture. Using what you would call the old knifeoscope. <laughs> yeah. Basically, yeah. If you, if you didn't have a natural aperture to look into, you would have to make one. You'd have to cut one. And it's, I think it is really difficult to overstate the importance of this bit of medical technology, the ability to see how bones and tissues are aligned, to see what might be wrong with them, what's broken, how are they healing. But to use a very basic example that comes up a, a lot discussing the x-ray and the advent of x-ray technology is uh, you have an individual who is, say, shot 
uh, with a with a by a gun, mm-hmm. a, a bullet enters their body. Now, sometimes the bullet exits the body, but other times it does not. How do you find the bullet? Well, today we can X-ray somebody, find the foreign ma- matter, and you know hone in on where we need to remove it from. But prior to this, one might have to do a bit of searching, and sometimes the bullet couldn't be found at all, which can have dire results. In 1881, for instance, uh, U.S. President James Garfield was shot and subsequently died in large part because they could not find the bullet. That story is actually weird and worth reading about in depth if you ever get a chance. The The assassin was a guy named Charles Julius Gateau, who he was this dude who thought that he had helped James Garfield get elected. Oh, yeah. And so he thought that uh, God was telling him that he had uh, like a, a special appointment coming to him, like that he deserved a consulship or something. And he ended up shooting James Garfield. But it's often been said that Garfield's death was not caused directly by the assassin's bullet, mm-hmm. but by the failures of medicine at the time, because he didn't die until 11 weeks after he was shot. Uh, not only could the doctors not find the bullet inside him, they had to keep digging around looking for it with like the unstable sterilized equipment and dirty hands of the time, uh, probably leading to the infections of the wound, which ended up killing him. Now, I don't, I don't want to imply that the x-ray, of course, is our only way of understanding what's going on inside the body or diagnosing illnesses, but it is tremendously important. And that yeah. is one of the reasons that x-rays are taken uh, so often. That is why I, I venture to say everyone listening to this podcast has received an x-ray uh, in their life, I'm sure you've received multiple X-rays. I would be I would be shocked if there was anyone out there who has never received an X-ray. And you should be thankful that X-rays are so much safer today than they were when they were first invented. Uh, but even when even back at that time when they were dangerous, they could be a life saving intervention. Um, so a bit more, I guess, on Mr. Rundkin. So he was born in Prussia, now Germany, uh, March twenty seventh, eighteen forty five. He died in February of nineteen twenty three in Munich. And in the mid-1890s, Röntgen was working as a professor of physics at Würzburg University in Bavaria. And around this time, the behavior of discharge known as cathode rays was extremely hot stuff in science. Lots of physics researchers around the world, they were pushing the limits of science working with cathode ray tube experiments. So what's a cathode ray tube? Here's the simple version. You get an enclosed glass tube and you use a vacuum to suck most of the air out of it, you want to try to create like a partial vacuum, a rarefied gas environment inside the tube. And then inside this tube, you have two metal electrodes known as a cathode and an anode. And imagine you connect those two electrodes separately to the terminals of a battery. The cathode is connected to the negative terminal. The anode is connected to the positive terminal. Now, obviously, the current wants to flow, right? It wants to flow from the negative to the positive. And if you apply a great enough voltage to this tube, you will actually begin to see the tube glow as a result of electrons flying off of the cathode and jumping to the anode, jumping across the gap. And so different forms of the anode can create different effects. Like if you use an anode, that's the receptive terminal, uh, with a hole in the middle, so it's kind of a ring that's attracting these electrons, you can essentially create a kind of beam of electrons that flows through the anode and projects against the inside wall of the tube on the far side. And if you use an anode in a particular shape, you can kind of cast a shadow in that shape of the tu- uh, against the back of the tube wall, surrounded by the glow of the streaming electron flow. 
Now, of course, at the time, physicists did not know what was happening in the tube, right? The, the electron was not even formally discovered until 1897 when the physicist J.J. Thompson used uh, cathode, cathode ray tube experiments to prove the existence of this tiny subatomic particle with a negative charge, which we would later come to call the electron. In the years before this, there was still a lot of mystery. What's happening? What's causing this glow? So a little bit earlier in the 1890s, Wilhelm Röntgen was performing experiments with cathode ray tubes. Specifically, it was on one day in November of 1895 that he was doing experiments on a kind of tube called a Crookes tube, named after the English physicist William Crookes. And while performing experiments with the tube in a completely darkened room, Röntgen noticed out of the corner of his eye that a screen of barium platinocyanide in the room with him began to glow when the cathode ray was powered up. Now, this barium platinocyanide, this is a material that was used in photographic plates that we now know fluoresces. It glows in the presence of ionizing radiation like X-rays and gamma rays. And so in this dark room, it was glowing. He found that the screen was being excited by some kind of energy that was emitted from the tube every time he turned it on. And the screen glowed as if it were being illuminated by light, but whatever caused it to glow was completely invisible to the naked eye. It was as if he had discovered a form of invisible light. Which sounds pretty freaky, right? Yeah. I mean, that's... Cue the Halloween music. Yeah. Uh, and it, it is essential, though, in understanding what's going on here because they did not understand what this was. No, they did not originally understand that this was a higher energy form of the same type of radiation that, that causes visible light. Uh, so he, he was doing experiments trying to figure out what was going on here. He immediately started uh, all these different tests. Like he found that the rays left images on photographic plates. So that's one thing. You could use them to essentially expose a photograph. Mm -hmm. And he also experimented with placing different objects between the tube and the photographic plates. And he found that this unknown energy, which he started calling X-rays, seemed to pass right through some objects like wood and paper while being stopped by others that would leave a, a dark spot on the exposed uh, photographic plate. In his most famous experiment, Röntgen extended this, this idea of the, the variable opacity or uh, transparency of, of solid matter to his own wife's hand, his wife, Anna Bertha. He asked her, he was like, honey, come in. <laughs> and he had her hold her hand over a photographic plate while he bombarded it with x-rays for about 15 minutes. And there's a story, not, not known for sure if it's true, that upon seeing the x-ray of her own hand, uh, Anna Bertha said, I have seen my death. Ha, because and when you've you, seen the skeleton. Yeah, when you look at the image, it's not hard to see why. It is so spooky. You can see the bones within the palm reaching up. I mean, it looks like these like long ghoulish fingers because what you're actually seeing is that the palm is composed of, of long bones that connect to the fingers at the knuckles. And so it makes the x-ray of the hand look like a hand with like freakishly long fingers. And then her wedding ring uh -huh, is yes. in there. So it's this huge black lump on the third finger. Uh, it's 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 creepy. You know, this I can't help but think of um, the, the scene in David Cronenberg's *The Fly*, mm -hmm. uh, where he wants to uh, to drag uh, Gina Davis's character, his, uh, his his former lover, into the uh, the telepod with him uh -huh. as part of the ongoing um, experiment. Uh, but uh, another comparison I want to draw here between. Uh, fictional mad science and real science and real innovation is something we've already touched on that he was not acting alone in all of this research. There were other people engaging with the same sort of technology, uh, sort of 
reaching after some of the same ideas, and he was the first person to really put things together. Yeah, so right after he discovered this, he immediately pretty much began to publicize his findings. It was the same year, uh, and other researchers replicated them. So other people did, they, you know, like it wasn't all that hard to put together the apparatus he had. It wasn't like he had some special materials or Mm -hmm. something. He was just like, hey, try this, and people pretty easily could, and they did. And so another scientist named Arthur Schuster soon discovered that X-rays were in fact the same type of radiation as visible light, just in a much higher energy form, higher frequency, shorter wavelengths. And so it's almost like, you know, the 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 keys to discovering the X-rays had been lying around. Yeah. Uh, and, and, but like with the fly, though, it, it, we just see this one vision of this uh, this mad scientist working on his own, as if no one else has uh, has really any access to the same ideas or technology when in reality there, there would probably be like six other additional uh, films in which someone did not successfully teleport themselves or yeah. did not wind up being turned into a monster that sort of thing i mean i guess also like the fly uh this story has some lessons about informed consent, right? Where he, I I don't think that Röntgen meant to cause his wife harm, but people at the time did not understand that overexposure to x-rays would be extremely dangerous, even lethal. And so you have the idea here of like, uh, of Röntgen inviting his wife into this experiment when she didn't really know what the risks were and he didn't either. Now, as we've touched on before, Röntgen is this turning point uh, because there's no real reason why someone else couldn't have technically made the same discovery sooner. Uh, as, uh, as And this was pointed out in uh, Early History of X-rays by Alexi Asmus. First of all, cathode ray tubes and uh, fluorescing screens were the only required technology, and they'd been around for decades. Mm-hmm. Uh, some researchers uh, had even observed uh, fluorescence in the tubing or fogged photographic plates. Mm-hmm. But prior to the work of German physicist, Nobel Prize winner, and ultimately total Nazi, uh, like seriously joined up uh, early and despised any non-German science, including uh, the, quote, Jewish fraud of relativity, uh, Philip Lennard, who lived 1862 through 1947, prior to his work, everyone was focused on what was going on inside the tube, not the effects of the ray outside the tube. Mm-hmm. And Lennard was, the, was actually the first to, to do this. And Röntgen made the key connections using equipment uh, that came from Lennard and uh, others as well, including Nikola Tesla. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. But again, it's just it's helpful to to, to look at at, uh, at at key innovation, key discoveries uh, taking place. You know, not in a vacuum. Like, it's, but there is something. But, but there is something kind of storybook special about that uh, that that one person who is the the, the first to make the, the the ultimate connection that leads to these new discoveries. Well, there was so much going on with physics discoveries around the turn of the twentieth century mm-hmm. and those decades surrounding it. I mean. It must have been such an exciting time to be working in a field like this. All right, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, uh, we're going to talk uh, some more about the, the, the kind of energy, the kind of uh, uh, innovations that come in the wake of this discovery. All right, we're back. So you remember uh, the story, uh, we, we don't know if it's true, but the story that uh, Anna Bertha, uh, Wil- Wilhelm Röntgen's wife, after she saw the x-ray of her hand, she said, I have seen my death. 
And that's interesting in multiple ways because it sort of unknowingly portends the risks, uh, the mm -hmm. dangers of x-rays. But also I think what she would have meant by that is that she could see her skeleton. She could see inside her own body. And this was something so unusual to people at the time. Right. I mean, and then in many cases, uh, essentially what a doctor is able to do is take the x-ray and say, oh, I, I see your death right here. Mm -hmm. um, but we can remove it. Don't worry about it. Right. I mean, that's not always uh, – this is an oversimplification and doesn't apply to all uh, medical scenarios. But it, again, it does give us this phenomenal ability to look inside the body and see in some cases things that should not be there, conditions that should not be there or uh, uh, the evidence of injury. And soon after the discovery of x-rays, in fact, very soon after, it was almost immediately picked up for medical uses. Yeah, everything from examining broken bones to, as we mentioned, finding lost bullets in a body. Mm -hmm. Now, as with pretty much any cutting-edge medical technology found at the dawn of the 20th century, uh, you can find a terrific look at, uh, at, at X-ray technology in the Steven Soderbergh medical drama, The Nick, uh -huh. uh, which I, I think I've mentioned on this show before. I've definitely mentioned it on Stuff to Blow Your Mind before. Uh, this is just a fabulous drama that wasn't seen by enough people uh, in the two seasons that it ran. I highly recommend anyone pick it up uh, because uh, in season one, episode six, the hospital at the center of this drama, they acquire a secondhand x-ray machine. And the whole time, there's just, there's just reckless use of x-rays in this episode. Uh, because again, we're in a, a period of time where there's all this enthusiasm about the, about the technology. And there's this, this just revelation about what it can be used for. And at the same time, uh, the, the dangers of the technology are only just beginning to be made evident. Mm -hmm. But in, in the Nick, there's a, there's a scene where the salesmen uh, and uh, members of the hospital staff are, are trying it out without any regard for the dangers of radiation exposure. Uh, there's a scene where the salesman boasts that the machine works just fine. He says, quote, my children were taking dozens of x-rays the, of themselves uh, the other day. They had the thing running for hours. <laughs> oh, that's some dark humor. It is. It's, it's a wonderful show, but oh, it's like it's like in Mad Men when you know the kids are always playing with like a plastic bag over their heads and stuff, yeah. and the the adults don't care. Yeah, there are a lot of moments like that. The, the show itself is is particularly good because it, it has this minimal electronic score. It has this. There, there's a way that they do the cinematography that Soderbergh shoots it in in which it, it doesn't feel like a period piece. It mm -hmm. is. It's you know obviously a period set in a historic period, but it's displayed bright and almost futuristic because it was a time when all these amazing discoveries were being made and all these technologies that are explored in this episode and in others uh, were the, the cutting, the bleeding edge of our understanding of, uh, of human physiology, but also uh, the, the, the physical nature of the world. But it's also got this dark retrospective irony. Yeah. Why, why is it that we love stuff like that? I've noticed that's a thing that lots of historical TV shows and movies do now, and generally audiences tend to love is that kind of thing. Like that my kids were playing with the x-ray machine or the, you know, this little mm -hmm. girl's playing with the plastic bag over her head. Like people just really love the like, oh, they don't understand the danger yet. Well, in a way, I think a show like The Nick is kind of reverse science fiction. Mm -hmm. uh, like science fiction look is, looks to the future but deals with contemporary anxieties about 
science and technological advancement and the cultural response to all of that. Mm-hmm. And uh, the Nick especially looks to the past, but I, I think you can you can see ways in which it is also speaking to the uh, definitely speaking to the modern viewer. Uh, so it is kind of a, a reverse science fiction. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I mean, it's interesting in a different way than looking at the science fiction of the past is because we – different things seem significant to us in right. retrospect than seemed uh, – than I guess seemed interesting to them in prospect. Exactly. Now, uh, certainly, as we've, we've touched on, the danger was not recognized yet. Uh, rather than radiation, the prevailing idea was that this was essentially a, a type of photography that was, uh, was being demonstrated with uh, the X-ray machine and that the rays involved were, were more akin to harmless light. Visible light. Yes. And Röntgen accepted uh, Lennard's view that the cathode rays were, quote, vibrations of the ether uh, and that it was ethereal and, didn't, and you know, therefore did not reflect or refract. Uh, they were, uh, he suggested, longitudinal vibrations of the ether. Ah, the ether. I guess this was the day of the uh, the luminiferous ether, right? The idea that there was a substance through which light had to propagate. And this mm-hmm. was one thing that people would often continue to think basically until Einstein, right? But part of Einstein's achievement was showing like you don't need an ether theory to show how light travels. By the way, this is another thing that's interesting about Röntgen is that he himself only published three papers on x-rays uh, during his yeah. life. Uh, but again, there were just so many people that were just ready to jump in on this research. I know that, one of his papers, I was looking at uh, an article that talked about how, I think it was his very last paper on x-rays, mm-hmm. was about how to make them visible. <laughs> and I think it was like that they could be perceived directly by the eye at a very high intensity or certain circumstances. Huh, interesting. It doesn't sound safe. No. <laughs> but uh, but again, yeah, it was, it was all these other uh, uh, researchers and innovators and, in, in, uh, and inventors that came in the aftermath uh, of his initial discovery that really uh, made all of this difference. Mm -hmm. Um, And then there were those, too, that dismissed it as mere novelty. And this is actually reflected in that episode of The Nick as well. Uh, But other people saw uh, its appeal. Dr. Henry W. Cattell, a demonstrator of morbid anatomy at the University of Pennsylvania, told That's the, a good title. Isn't it? It yeah. sounds like a Hogwarts uh, position, doesn't it? <laughs> uh, but he told the New York Times in 1896, quote, the surgical imagination can pleasurably lose itself in devising endless applications of this wonderful process. <laughs> and that is in uh, contrast to other individuals who thought this was a fad, that this was just a, you know, a sideshow and that clearly wasn't going to be a, a major part of medical diagnosis or treatment. Now, it can't – we were talking at the beginning about how it wasn't immediately clear how dangerous it was, but it can't have taken too long for people to catch on, right, because they would start to see the effects. Right. That's And, and that's was that was driven home in a couple of different resources I looked at here for this. The dangers apparently became clear to many of these individuals who were working with radiation uh, pretty early. By 1897, for instance, hair loss and skin burns were already being reported mm-hmm. uh, because you have these researchers working without protection, exposing themselves to uh, to these uh, rays way too much, and they're beginning to notice damage to their own tissues. Yeah, and if you if you want to see something really horrible, you can look up what X-ray burns look like. It, it is a nasty business. 
Now, throughout this time, researchers continued to weigh in on just what it was. You know, what was it? Is this a, vor- a vortex in the ether uh, that I'm looking at here? High-frequency light? Of course, that's the correct answer. <laughs> Longitudinal waves, that was the original idea. Uh, transverse impulses of the ether. And uh, similar properties were also, of course, observed in uranium. But it was ultimately, ultimately going to be a 30-year journey for scientists to really gain a, like a kind of a bedrock understanding of what they were dealing with. Another thing that modern audiences might not understand is that because if you've had an x-ray at the dentist recently or something like that, it probably did not take all that long. You know, they just mm-hmm. flash it on and off and there you go. Uh, the older x-ray machines took a lot longer. Well, you mentioned earlier a 15-minute exposure in yeah. some of the original uh, experiments. Uh, and it would require – you would need even longer periods of time for certain parts of the, of the anatomy such as the, the head. Mm-hmm. There's another scene in that episode of The Nick where uh, uh, he's testing it out on the the hospital administrator character. And he says, what part of your body do you want to see? And he said, oh, uh, I want to see my head. So he has him hold up the the plate and uh, sets up the machine and says, all right, this should take about an hour. (laughs) No. Yeah, because the the, the head and the brain were extremely difficult to image at the time. Mm Mm-hmm. But as we said, there, yeah, there was a lot of danger in the early days of radiation experimentation and usage. Uh, Dr. Walter James uh, Dodd, for instance, who lived uh, 1869 through, 19, uh, who, through 1916, he was one of uh, the United States' first radiologists. He made some very key uh, early innovations, but he also suffered numerous radiation burns and had to have several uh, appendages amputated. And he eventually died of cancer from radiation exposure at the age of 53. Thomas Edison actually abandoned his own research into X-ray technology after his assistant, a glassblower by the name of Clarence Madison Daly, suffered a nearly an identical fate to Dodd due to radiation exposure. Yeah, that's something to hammer home that, um, I mean, a lot of the risk at the time was to, obviously if you were being imaged a lot and having a lot of exposure to x-rays that way, it was risky for you. But it's especially risky for the people who were operating the machines because yeah. they're around them all the time. They're not just there when they're being imaged. They're there all day. Yeah, I, I was looking at uh, one uh, source here, early clinical use of the x-ray by Joel D. Howell. MD, PhD, published uh, in 2016 in the Transactions of the American Clinical and Climatological Association. And the author pointed out the following. He says, quote, early x-ray users would test to see if the tube was putting out an adequate amount of x-ray by looking for a glow in their hand when they put it in front of the beam, a method of testing that would soon reveal itself to have uh, deleterious consequences. But he also adds that evidence seems to indicate that many of them knew way more about the dangers than they let on. And that he says that there was this zeal, uh, uh, you know, this real, this idea that there was a valor in pushing this amazing and life-saving technology, um, even though there were these uh, ever more apparent risks. Oh, I want to talk about a, a very clear example of that in a minute with uh, with Marie Curie, actually. He also points out uh, another thing that's very interesting. He says that it's it's very uh, – about how we, we can't quite look at the X-ray machine in isolation to understand the changes that came about because of it. Oh, yeah? I'm going to read a, 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 a longer uh, quote from that paper. He says, quote, One must study how the machine is used with a specific social, political, and economic system. The technology to be considered is not only a machine, it is also the system within which that machine is used. 
In the case of the X-ray machine, that would include the organizational structure of the institution, the people designated to run the machine, and the forms on which such use was recorded. Even though the published medical literature would suggest that the case for using X-rays to diagnose fractured bones was firmly established by 1900, it was not a regular part of patient care for decades to come. What was required for it to become a part of routine patient care included changes in the type of person who was running the machine, changes in the payment mechanism, and changes in the way that data were conceptualized. Yeah, I mean, it's introducing a whole new paradigm to medical care. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, and, and again, this is just another reason that it it's difficult to, to overstate uh, the impact of, uh, of X-ray technology on, uh, on medicine. Absolutely, and I want to talk about an example of that also in early uh, early 20th century wartime medicine. So there's a fantastic article I read by Timothy J. Jorgensen, who's the director of the Health Physics and Radiation Protection Graduate Program at uh, Georgetown University. And the article is on the conversation. It's called Marie Curie and Her X-Ray Vehicles Contribution to World War I Battlefield Medicine. And so this is a story I actually somehow I'd never read about before, um, but this was fascinating. So we all know Marie Curie, the Polish-born mm-hmm. French physicist and chemist. And she's best known probably for the discovery and isolation of the elements radium and polonium and for her work on radioactivity, spontaneous radiation, for which she received two different Nobel Prizes in 1903 and 1911. Uh, So Curie was doing her work. She was conducting her research in Paris uh, with the Radium Institute when World War I broke out in Europe. And in one of the early maneuvers of the war in 1914, German troops clearly had set their sights on the city of Paris, on the French capital. And they eventually – they invaded France through Belgium and were trying to march toward Paris to take the capital city. Obviously, Curie knew that she couldn't continue her research if the city was attacked. So – She packed up her supply of radium, like literally packed it up in a lead-lined case and fled to the southwest toward Bordeaux, which I think is also where the French government were moved to. But she went to Bordeaux and she hid her radium in a safe deposit box in a bank vault. Oh, man. Yeah. But having safely stored France's supply of radium, her radioactive treasures – She did not just continue to flee the war. Instead, Curie was determined to help with the war effort and defend France against the German assault. But she couldn't, of course, pick up a rifle and go to the front lines, but she had another idea. Instead, she used her knowledge about physics and radiation to create an invention that would go on to save the lives of thousands of injured French and Allied soldiers on the front lines, and this would all be with the help of X-rays. So by the time of World War I, X-rays were known to be a life-saving medical technology like we've been talking about. They were useful for diagnosing internal injuries. But you had the big clunky X-ray machines of the day that were usually cooped up in the high-tech urban hospitals, right? So if a French soldier was filled with bullets or shrapnel along the front, these hospitals would have been many miles away. You can't like take the soldier all the way back to the hospital. A lot of times they'll often die on the way. It would take a long time to get there. Um, So what do you do? How do you bring the life-saving power of x-rays to the injured fighters on the front? So Marie Curie's invention was the radiological car. Ah. It's a car on the bottom but outfitted with a compartment containing an x-ray machine and a dynamo to generate the electricity to power it as well as darkroom equipment for the development of radiological photographs. And these radiological cars were nicknamed by the soldiers Petite Curies. Ah. 
And Curie oversaw the creation of the first car, which was uh, used to treat wounded soldiers at the Battle of Marne later in 1914, a battle which the Allies won. But obviously one car was not enough to put a serious dent in this problem. So Curie herself petitioned donations of cars from rich French women to be turned into petite Curies. And with the help of her daughter Irene, Curie trained female volunteers to operate the X-ray machines on the front lines. And by the end of the war, they had trained 150 women as frontline radiographers. Now, Curie also oversaw the creation of uh, more fixed facilities like X-ray diagnostic stations at field hospitals behind the front and drove – and she actually drove and operated a radiological car for the war effort herself. Of course, repeated exposure to X-rays, which Curie and her technicians experienced, come that comes with a lot of associated health risks like we've been talking about. And Curie understood this. Like she knew that she was – putting herself and her health and her life at risk by exposing herself to these x-rays. But I think she saw it as part of the risk of aiding in the war effort, just like a soldier would put his life on the line going out over the trenches. And actually later in her life when Curie suffered from aplastic anemia, which can, of course, result from radiation exposure, some people thought, well, maybe it was her experiments with radium and stuff that caused that condition. But Curie actually believed it was her repeated exposure to x-rays during the war that were more likely to have caused the condition. And all told, it's been estimated that Curie's efforts contributed to more than a million wounded soldiers receiving x-rays during the war, a huge fraction of which likely had their lives saved by the procedure. It is interesting in retrospect to, to, you know, to see how this technology came online uh, in time, just mm-hmm. in time for uh, the, the two world wars, times of such injury and loss of life. Yeah, I mean, often when you think about the nightmare of the First World War in particular, it seems like it's a time of such terrifying chaos and confusion largely brought about by new technology, right? New warfare technology, uh, that it was almost like an experimental laboratory for ways to kill and harm one another. And and so it's kind of interesting also seeing going on in the background it being a laboratory of ways to save lives. Indeed. All right, on that note, we're going to take another break. And when we come back, uh, we're going to discuss the legacy of the X-ray. So x-rays changed the world in other ways. As Richard Gunderman, uh, professor of medicine, liberal arts, and uh, philanthropy at Indiana University, uh, pointed out in an article uh, that he wrote for The Conversation, uh, this discovery of x-ray and the advent of x-ray technology led to x-ray crystallography, which allows us to see the world at a very small scale. Yeah, to image molecules. Yeah. And in fact, uh, the father-son team of William H. and William L. Bragg shared the the 1915 Nobel Prize in physics for this advancement. And without it, James Watson and Francis Crick wouldn't have been able to discover the chemical structure of DNA. Oh, yeah. And always got to shout out Franklin and Wilkins as well. Oh, yes. Now, additionally, X-ray astronomy uh, allowed us to uh, understand the greater cosmos. Yeah, and X-ray astronomy is an interesting case. It's worth putting in the context of the broader ecosystem of technology. Like astronomy 
saw such an explosion of new techniques after the 1960s once we could put observatories in space. Mm -hmm. And this is largely because Earth's atmosphere blocks many kinds of radiation that we now use to image the universe. And this obviously is a very good <laughs> thing, right? The atmosphere lets most visible light through while stopping a lot of ionizing radiation from space like X-rays. And by adding space-based telescopes that could see other parts of the electromagnetic spectrum, not just visible light, we greatly expanded astronomical capabilities. Uh, for example, X-ray astronomy in particular has helped us detect and understand some of the most extreme and energetic objects in the universe, uh, like it played a role in the detection and understanding of neutron stars and black holes. Like we often detect black holes from the X-rays they emit, not necessarily from the body itself, but when a black hole has material spiraling into it, it spews jets of X-rays out into space as the black hole superheats the gases that are swirling into it. Now, on a much smaller scale, uh, Gunderman doesn't mention this in his uh, article, but airport security x-rays, uh, no matter how much they may irritate us, uh, they, they do help keep commercial flights safe in this day and age. Can you imagine if they couldn't x-ray your bags and they had to, like, open up everybody's bag oh, and yeah. look through it? Or just, like, just look you in the eyes and just, <laughs> it was just like a trust system. Uh, or, gosh, yeah, you can just imagine all the, the, the myriad complications that would arise from not being able to uh, perform that scan. Yeah, I'm going to say, I, I, I'm open to being argued otherwise, but as annoying as airport security is, it would be infinitely worse <laughs> and infinitely more annoying without x-rays. But it's, it's kind of like you said, this is part of the broader ecosystem of the technology. And of course, there were also additional changes in the way we used x-rays uh, for medical purposes, uh, not only to find bullets and broken, broken bones, but to you know, spot uh, pneumonias, swallowed objects, cavities, and even cancer. And then you get more advanced versions of x-ray uh, scans that uh, became possible. Uh, CT scans, uh, for instance, beam x-rays through the body at different angles to create a superior image. Yeah, and people who are outside the medical professions might not realize how absolutely essential CT scans are these days, like how, how frequently they're used and how many lives they save. Uh, Gunderman points to a 2015 study in the journal Radiology that looked into the use of CT scans in the emergency department of hospitals. Mm -hmm. And the authors there just wanted to see how often a CT scan changes the doctor's primary diagnosis of a patient, right? Doctor sees you, examines you externally, they think one thing, so they order a CT scan. How often does the CT scan change what they think is wrong with you? And the study found, quote, the leading diagnosis changed in 235 of 460 patients with abdominal pain, and that's about 51%. Wow. 163 of 387 with chest pain and or uh, dyspnea, which is difficulty breathing, and that's 42%. And 103 out of 433 with headache, which is 24%. So we can't compare this directly with the time before CT scans because it's just – it's kind of apples and oranges. But if you take it as a very rough estimate, just think about what it means that CT scans change what a doctor thinks is wrong with you 51 percent or 42 percent of the time and then think about what that meant before we had these technologies, right? Mm -hmm. Just imagine going to the doctor with chest pain or trouble breathing in the 1800s before there was any of, the, any of this kind of internal imaging when even doctors today change their primary diagnosis about 42 percent of the time after looking at a CT scan. 
Gunderman writes, quote, Thanks to CT's wide availability and great speed, doctors can determine within minutes whether or not a patient's abdominal pain is due to appendicitis, chest pain reflects a tear in the aorta, or a severe headache is due to the rupture of a blood vessel in the brain. It is no wonder that about 80 million CT scans are performed each year in the U.S. And it also turned out that the same radiation that could detect cancer could also destroy it. Yeah, radiotherapy. Yeah, radiation uh, oncology has its roots actually in the years immediately following uh, Röntgen's discovery when doctors discovered this peculiar power. Now, to be sure, x-rays were used to treat a lot of illnesses before its dangers were discovered. Uh, Again, you just have to think to this, the the, the zealous use of radiation and just the idea that this new technology could do just about anything. Yeah. But looking broadly at these and then zeroing in on... uh, on some of the treatment details, x-rays to treat cancer may have uh, occurred as early as 1896. Which, if you'll recall from earlier, that's the year right after uh, Röntgen discovered x-rays. And it was like at the end of 1895 that he discovered them. Right. Now, I want to stress, though, uh, used in an attempt to treat. Yeah. Uh, this This was certainly extremely early days. Now, one thing that's interesting and worth noting is that uh, Röntgen actually did not seek riches from his discovery. Like, he did not file for a patent on the production of x-rays through his method. Uh, and he even donated the cash component of his Nobel Prize to the university he worked for. He believed that scientific discoveries like x-rays that were useful in, in helping people in medicine were the common property of humankind, not something to be claimed and profited on by one man. And that's, that's kind of a refreshing change. It is, yeah. Now, to recap, Röntgen discovered x-rays in 1895. The following year, Anton Becquerel identified radioactivity, and by 1900, alpha, beta, and gamma rays had been discovered. And uh, as uh, James Burke, uh, the author and and television host, uh, explored in The Day the Universe Changed, uh, even more types of radiation were expected. Even more discoveries surely seemed to be just around the bend. Mm -hmm. And then in 1903, Burke writes, uh, the physicist René Blondelot reported the discovery of a new type of ray, the N-ray. And he observed them while looking at polarized X-rays and reported that they increased the brightness of an electric spark. And after he made this observation, uh, uh, other individuals working in the field, uh, they backed him up on this. They said, oh, yeah, we, we see it too. And within three years, hundreds of papers had been written about N-rays with all sorts of new properties uh, uh, thrown into the vat here, including uh, various connections with muscle activity and the inner workings of the human mind, Mm. uh, as if like, uh, you know, uh, intense human thought could create N-rays. And in the midst (laughs) of all this, American physicist Robert W. Wood steps in. He was something of an acclaimed debunker at the time. Mm -hmm. And uh, he looked into the matter. He observed Blondelot's demonstrations uh, himself, like firsthand, and he did not see the increase in the electric spark's brightness. And then when uh, Blondelot and his uh, assistants uh, conducted uh, an experiment with a prism, which was another uh, thing that they did to to try and prove the existence of these N-rays, to show uh, how it refracted like light, which of course X-rays do not, Wood did a curious thing. He uh, he quietly removed the prism while they were uh, from their experiment while they were conducting it, and the researchers continued to see the N rays <laughs> or, or report seeing the N rays, and so uh, essentially Wood just completely 
uh, discredited this. Uh, he, he reported on it, and after he 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 did so, no one saw an in ray again. This was essentially essentially an uh, an illusion uh, that was brought on by just the, the the zeal for discovery and the feeling that there were going to be more rays and uh, and 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 that it was just inevitable that they would be found. Well, as we mentioned earlier, this was a time of tremendous discovery, but it was also a time when people believed tons of scientific things that later turned out to be completely wrong. The luminiferous ether, that's just gone. There's nothing there, nothing to the theory. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, but it was widely accepted at this time. Yeah, Burke writes in uh, The Day the Universe Changed, quote, there was never any suggestion that Blondlet was a charlatan. He and his colleagues were victims of the expectation that in-rays would be discovered, and when they built instruments to see the rays, they saw them. For a short time, this non-existent phenomenon resisted the most stringent tests and methods known to science. So it becomes something of a, you know, a cautionary tale about um, over-enthusiasm uh, in scientific research and the dangers of it potentially outstripping the rigors of science and scientific uh, investigation. Yeah, you can understand why people would be excited, but simmer down, folks. This is also kind of an interesting invention to close out this episode of invention, the the, the instruments that they invented to see the non-existent in rays. Yeah. Um, you know, because again, it's not like a pooping duck robot. It's not a, it's it's not a work of uh, of charlatan. Mm -hmm. It is just a a, a work that um, compounds an illusion. Yeah, well-meaning enthusiasm can still breed gremlins. That it can. That it can. All right, so there you have it, another episode of Invention. Uh, we can file that one away. And if you want to check out the files, if you want to see other episodes of the show, uh, head on over to inventionpod.com. Uh, that is our website. You'll find the other episodes as well as links out to our social media accounts. And if you want to discuss the show with other listeners, uh, we would recommend going to Stuff to Blow Your Mind discussion module. That's a Facebook group where, you know, mostly we've talked about episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, but we are also happy to discuss episodes of Invention there as well. Huge thanks to our friend Scott Benjamin for research assistance on this show and to our excellent audio producer, Tari Harrison. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, suggest a topic for the future of invention, or just to say hi, let us know how you found out about the show, you can email us at contact at inventionpod.com. 